Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. We're back. Welcome to our first episode of 2024. Today, we're going to do an update on Gaza. Fighting has intensified in Khan Yunus. Nine Israeli soldiers were killed yesterday. The Americans still aren't calling for a ceasefire. They do want Israel to stop killing Palestinian civilians and dial down tension on the northern border, but have yet to threaten any sanctions or the suspension of arms sales if Israel refuses to do so. So we're now more than three months into Israel's assault on Gaza, launched in response to attacks led by the Palestinian militant group Hamas on the 7th of October. Over recent days, Israeli officials have announced a new phase to the military campaign in parts of the Strip, particularly northern Gaza. Israeli forces will apparently shift from intense ground fighting and bombing to more targeted operations. But it's still unclear what will happen to the rest of Gaza, particularly along the southern border with Egypt, where many Palestinians and likely some Hamas leaders and fighters are now sheltering. Israel's war with Hamas has reached the southern suburbs of Beirut. by targeting Salah Aruri, the group's main leader in Lebanon, in the political and military stronghold of Hezbollah, Israel crossed a line. We'll also talk today about Israel's exchanges of fire with the Lebanese militant group and the recent killing of a top Hamas leader in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. There's a lot going on elsewhere in the region this week, particularly around the Red Sea. We'll talk a bit about that next week. But today we'll focus on what is still one of the most dangerous flashpoints, the Israel-Lebanon border. So what should we expect from this new phase in Gaza? How much of Hamas's military infrastructure, particularly its tunnel network, has Israel managed to destroy? What should we make of recent meetings among Palestinian factions, including Hamas and its main political rival, Fatah? And how close are we to a major war between Israel and Hezbollah? So this is a slightly longer episode than usual. Bear with us. There's a lot to catch up on. We'll do it in three parts. In a bit, I'll talk to Tahani Mustafa, our Palestine expert and then to Heiko Women, our Iraq-Syria-Lebanon director in Beirut. First, though, I'm happy to welcome back onto the podcast Myra Zonshine, our Israel expert, and Rob Bletcher, who's our Future of Conflict director, but for years was our Israel-Palestine director. Myra, Rob, welcome back. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. So, Myra, it's been some weeks since you were last on the show. Do you want to give us an update of the mood in Israel? I think it's gone from kind of uh, trauma and shock to a lot more grief and now a mixture of a kind of a sobering reality check about the fact that this war doesn't seem to have a clear end. And the hostages, of course, are still there and nobody knows what's happening with that. And uh, I think there's just kind of a coming to terms with the fact that what is being promised by the political leadership and what we're seeing three months in are quite different and so the public is kind of, I think, trying to deal with that. And we are starting to see now a little bit more political organization around the call for elections as well. So although, you know, as we've talked about on the podcast before, many Israelis distrust Benjamin Netanyahu, obviously a lot of opposition to him before the war. Many people still don't like his government. But how do people view the conduct of the war itself uh, and, and the way that it's being fought uh, there's still consensus that Hamas must be removed and that that is a legitimate and achievable war aim. And I think there's also polls to back that up in high numbers across the political spectrum in Israel. Uh, the hostages and Hamas are the two main war objectives, getting the hostages back. 
uh, removing Hamas, and that is something that uh, remains uh, a consensus in Israel. Uh, but you have this kind of paradoxical situation in which they have no trust in the government. So they they believe in the war effort, but they don't believe in the people leading the war effort, which is kind of intensifying the notion that there will have to be some kind of leadership change during this war effort in order for there to be results. And that's specifically focused on the day after and on how whatever it is that Israel is doing in Gaza now is going to translate into some kind of sustainable situation later on. Um, so I think even when I speak to security officials, people in the army who are, you know, not in, in the political echelon, they don't usually talk about policy. You can hear from them that they're frustrated that there isn't a more clear vision. And you wrote a piece recently in the New York Times that looked at some of the demands and the protests by the families of the hostages that Hamas holds in Gaza, some of the pressure that they were putting on the government. What sort of political relevance do those debates have? How influential are they? It's quite amazing to see that the hostages have really, you know, faded away as like a public uh, issue in the last few weeks, even as the families try to intensify their pressure, even as the stakes are even higher, even as we're seeing that there's failed uh, botched attempts to rescue hostages. And we have not seen a single hostage brought back uh, alive from any kind of military operation, except for the very beginning of the war. But Israel seems to be very clear on the fact that it won't agree to a ceasefire uh, in order to negotiate the hostage release. And the families, I think, are now saying a little bit more clearly that they want Israel to not only, you know, offer whatever it can and kind of initiate more um, on the hostage issue via Qatar, but that they're also pushing Israel to accept any offer on the table, which presumably would include uh, all for all or freeing all the 7,000 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons, including Marwan Barghouti, which has become something that people are talking about a little bit more. Just so people know, I mean, he's the Palestinian leader, uh, Fatah leader that, you know, we'll talk about it a bit later in the show that Palestinian factions are sort of rallying behind as a potential new leader, but he's serving five lifetime jail sentences, I think, in an Israeli jail at the moment. That's right. So the families are kind of starting, I think, even though they don't want to take a position on the war itself or on how Israel should wage the negotiation, they're starting to say you need to accept whatever deals on the table because their lives are at stake, uh, because they're concerned about the, you know, the mental health and the physical health of some of the hostages. And um, we've talked about this last time, but I wonder if that's changed very much, the degree of destruction in Gaza, the human toll in Gaza. Is that resonating much in Israeli society? It is not resonating, um, neither in public nor in, you know, I speak to security officials and, and they, the, the line they insist on is that there is no humanitarian disaster in Gaza. And they also claim that, you know, they're allowing in as many trucks as necessary. They're, of course, not mentioning the fact that in the situation of constant war and fire, it's impossible to supply that aid in an efficient way. As far as the Israeli public, it's not being shown in the media. It's not being discussed, even with this uh, International Court of Justice hearing the public officials, their responses are just a denial, denial that these are issues that, that they have to confront. And we're actually talking on the first day of hearings of the International Court of Justice, where, as you say, South Africa has brought a case that accuses Israel of a calculated pattern of conduct indicating genocidal intent. Israel obviously denies that. So what's been the Israeli coverage of the case so far? So there was, you know, some live streaming tidbits of it with commentary. I'm seeing public officials already, you know, say things like uh, South Africa was the technical entity that brought it together, but it's really the Palestinian Authority's initiative. 
I think the foreign ministry just put out a statement saying that this is the legal wing of Hamas that is putting this forward. And I think it's very difficult for the Israeli public to really come to terms with, even if you forget the actual allegation or accusation of genocide, just hearing uh, them take stock of what has been happening in the last three months and the scope of the de- devastation uh, is something that I don't think Israelis are really able to, to deal with. Um, and tomorrow Israel will present its side of things. And I imagine that it is you know, going to be very, um, very emotive for all people involved. And so let's move to Gaza then and the destruction that you talked about. I'm sure all listeners are well aware of the scale of what's happened in Gaza upwards now of 23,000 people killed. That's a sort of astounding 1% of the population in Gaza, untold thousands of children dead, maimed, orphaned, 85 to 90% of the population of the Strip displaced. I think you know, big chunks of the cities and towns in Gaza, destroyed in the UN, now warning of famine. But Rob, you're speaking regularly to people in Gaza, to the aid agencies that are trying to keep people alive. Look, there's no secret about how horrible the humanitarian situation in Gaza is. Um, the uh, the media has covered it extensively. As you said, we're in a situation where uh, virtually the entire population is in a situation of food insecurity. Uh, the folks who work on this stuff say that this is the worst such situation that they've seen. Obviously, the destruction of the health facilities, destruction of the wash, the water and sanitation and hygiene facilities, the basic infrastructure of life has all been destroyed. What's interesting from the political perspective is how, on the one hand, there really is no secret about how bad things are. But on the other hand, the apparent willingness um, of major political actors to accept this as the cost of doing war. The uh, White House uh, national security spokesperson, John Kirby, the other day when commenting um, on why the U.S. is not pursuing a ceasefire, he said that the ceasefire would not uh, benefit anybody except for Hamas. He's equating the entire Palestinian population with Hamas. So um, the kind of uh, dehumanization that we see on the Israeli side, which has given rise to the kinds of suffering that we're talking about, I think you could argue that on the U.S. side, there's a kind of softer dehumanization that's going on as well as now, where the terms are not as vicious, but the kinds of sentiment that I just mentioned, like that's that's also a case of dehumanization. It's implying that everybody in Gaza is deserving of the treatment that they're getting. And much of the discussion about aid into Gaza focuses on how much is getting in, whether it's enough. What's the latest in terms of sort of numbers of trucks going in? The aid numbers go up and down. Uh, there were actually more trucks uh, going in during the humanitarian pause than have been going in quite recently. Um, and that's because Israel changed the procedures to get trucks in during the humanitarian pause. But now the numbers are lower again. It's not only a matter of how many trucks go into Gaza, it's also a matter of what is on those trucks and how what is on those trucks um, is able to move around in Gaza. The distribution um, without effective deconfliction is somewhere between very dangerous and completely infeasible. Uh, you already have humanitarian workers who are exhausted, who are part of the population that they're serving, uh, that do not have food, um, whose families are suffering. And then when you uh, add on top of it the fact that their work involves 
risking moving around the strip um, in situations of active conflict. It's extremely dangerous to move anything around. And also given the fraying of public order. Um, so storing something in a warehouse or even moving of trucks is, is precarious when you have the majority of the population starving. It's not easy to move food around without people trying to get the food. Plus the fact we shouldn't forget that when we talk about humanitarian situation, we're talking about uh, bringing people the goods that we need to keep them hanging on the, 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 the basic edge of life. That's obviously crucial. Um, but we're not talking about rebuilding the infrastructure that people need in order to live, rebuilding uh, hygiene and water and educational facilities. There's a basic infrastructure of life that you miss out on when you're just talking about how many trucks are going in every day. So... Over the last uh, week or so, you've had Israeli officials talk about a new phase of the war. Even before then, they'd pulled out some of the reservists from Gaza. You also have some Israeli officials saying that much of the Hamas infrastructure in the north of Gaza, so presumably the tunnels mostly, that much of that has been destroyed. So how significant is this? What should we read into it? I mean, what I'm understanding from officials that I speak to and from what we see in the media is that in the northern Gaza Strip, they have operational control. That doesn't mean that every single Hamas militant is, is gone, but that they overall have control there. They can reduce the number of troops there. Um, the underground, I don't know to what extent has been destroyed, but that they feel confident enough um, that they can start rolling operations there and even start to consider what it would mean to have the population start to come back to the north, which is something we still don't, we still don't know. We don't have a timeline. It wouldn't be going back to homes. It would be going back to tents. Um, but if you look at what Israel's trying to do in the north, it has gone into this third phase, right, where there's no longer a high intensity conflict. There's no longer as many ground troops on the ground. Uh, in the center, in the south, it's still different. The center is closer to getting to that phase. And then in Khan Yunus, it's apparently going to still take a few more weeks. And then they also hope to reach that phase. But then the big question is, if they're going to continue to operate in the south, you know, and all of the population pretty much of Gaza is in the south, and they're also concerned Israel about um, Rafah and the Philadelphia route, which is the border between Egypt and Gaza, then what are they going to do to, to deal with that area and also with the smuggling and with the fact that Hamas de facto still is in control there um, militarily and in terms of civilian infrastructure. And Myra, when you say a third phase of operations, so the first phase was the heavy bombardment for, I think, a few weeks before the ground operations. The second phase was actually fighting Hamas in Gaza. And the third phase that Israeli officials are talking about moving to now would, in essence, be sort of military control, but more targeted operations. And as you say, Israelis say they're ready to do that in the north, in Gaza City. They say they're getting close to that in Khan Yunis, which is a little bit further south. But then, you know, as, as you say, you've got Rafa and other places along the Egypt border where not only much of the population now is that, that have fled from other parts of Gaza, but presumably, as you say, some Hamas leaders, some fighters are there. Maybe some are also still underground elsewhere. We don't really know what's happened with all the tunnels, but certainly many of them seem to be in Rafa. And as you say, the question then is sort of what is going to happen there? The Rafah area is something that, you know, I don't I don't think they're going to be able to move that many people out of there. So I'm not really sure what their plan is there. And that would be the real risk of the expulsion of the population um, if they're just all pushed into these this one space and Israel still intensifying its offensive. 
So Israel is trying to avoid that at this point. So it's going to have to do something, whether move the population or change the way its offensive looks like. And then I don't know what that means for the Hamas infrastructure, the underground tunnel network. Uh, it's unclear to me how much of it in Khan Yunus has been destroyed. And I think Israel is hoping uh, that in uh, that the next two weeks or three weeks, they're going to see some kind of achievement, whether on getting to Hamas leadership and or the hostages, which is something that they still haven't been able to do. It seems like there's kind of two narratives. One is uh, they'll try to find a way to move people back north. I, I just don't see how that's possible. Like the damage in the north is you, you would be pushing people back to live in tents without any infrastructure. I mean, I look, I mean, they've they've kind of been doing it, I suppose, so far. But like this just brings it one step worse. Um, the other idea is to do as much of Rafah as you can from the air. Uh, which is ultimately going to be inadequate. And then whatever you cannot do from the air, you do from the ground, but from the Egyptian side. So you make a deal with the Egyptians to work on the Philadelphia corridor, corridor to go in that way. And that way recognizes that you're not going to get all of Hamas. And certainly there are some from Hamas that are hiding um, in either above ground with civilians or underground without civilians. The question is, what is the number that Israel would need to get in order to um, break Hamas's political capacities. The level of destruction and doing it from the air, I mean, it would be a repeat of Gaza City, basically. Except for the fact that the buildings are smaller there, so you wouldn't um, probably need the same size. But yeah, I mean, it is so densely packed there. It is people, just people living on top of people living on top of people. When I talk to uh, our our analysts there and about the attitudes of the people and their their fears and the and the next steps that they contemplate. Um, you know, I I asked what happens if Israel pushes into Rafah on the ground. What if the intensity of the bombing um, intensifies? Does this mean that people push to the border? Um, obviously, Egypt uh, has defenses set up to uh, to avoid that. But you know, if enough people push, would Egypt be able to stop it? And his response was that in the end, Egypt would not be able to stop it. But there are a lot of Palestinians, Gazans in Rafah now saying, I, I'm not going to do that. It's partially for political reasons that people don't want to be those people that were engaged in the second who were involved in the second Nakba actually leaving Gaza, um, abandoning um, their homeland, even if under pressure. Um, but it's also because... The Gazans, they see Egypt as being responsible for a lot of their misery and their fears about being stuck in Sinai in a desert with a state that abandons them completely. So a lot of people are just saying, screw it, we're just going to stay here and die if we have to. And Rob, do you have a sense, I mean, you're in touch with people in Gaza, do you have a sense of how Hamas thinks the war's going? One of its top leaders, Saleh al-Aruri, was just killed in Lebanon. We'll talk about that in a moment. But more broadly, do we know? I, I think one of the problems in evaluating how Hamas is feeling about the war is that it's not clear that Hamas is fighting the same war that Israel is fighting. Israel, in order to win, has to um, really defeat Hamas if Hamas pops up the day afterwards, um, as has happened multiple times in the north after Israel has claimed control of the area. If Hamas pops up, it's seen as Israel not having done its job. And if that happens at the end, um, Israel will be seen as not having achieved its goals. Hamas 
right? Just has to survive. Um, and that's a major asymmetry. So part of it is the asymmetry. Um, part of it is that Hamas is fighting a political battle here to show that Israel is not as strong as everybody thought that Israel was. So there's an imbalance here. They have a, a, a logic of survival here, which is a, a very different kind of war goal. So as we talked about earlier, Myra, Qatar with Egyptian and US support, brokered the first hostage release, prisoner release deal back at the end of November. And over the last few weeks, there's been negotiations in Egypt, Palestinian factions there, including Hamas and an Israeli delegation. I assume they weren't meeting face to face, but they were there talking about a potential new deal. And Egypt, in essence, appears to have proposed a phase deal, some initial hostage releases in return for a pause, in fighting that will be followed then by political talks among Palestinians and some sort of technocratic Palestinian authority in Gaza, then a full ceasefire and all the hostages released in exchange for all Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Israeli forces would then withdraw from Gaza. So apparently that's what Egypt has proposed. Now Hamas said no to it and we'll come a bit later in the show to why Hamas and other Palestinian factions have rejected that deal. But Myra, as you said earlier, Israel has also been reluctant to sort of accept a deal along those lines. I mean, I think they might be open to a pause, but not to a situation that would require a f- permanent ceasefire in which they have to withdraw, uh, I think, all their troops from Gaza itself. I think the end game with the Egypt proposal, uh, which was positive, was that at the end, um, Hamas leadership would be uh, removed from power and the IDF would be removed from Gaza. Uh, But neither side has agreed to that. Um, And it was a multi-stage process. So, you know, it it did have some maneuvering involved, but it was also not something that has really resonated in Israel. It was like a headline that then disappeared. Nobody's really talking about it. There's so many plans and so many scenarios and nobody knows what's really happening. But, you know, now there's talk in Israel about uh, pushing Sinwar and other leadership out of Gaza now. And I don't think that's actually something that Qatar has put on the table. Qatar, no. But we have heard the idea of uh, the Hamas leadership leaving Gaza. We have heard that in other Arab capitals. But even if it were feasible, do you think that's something that Israel might accept? So let's say the leadership of Hamas, particularly those sort of responsible for the 7th of October attacks, if they left Gaza, if Israel felt enough of the military infrastructure had been destroyed, that Israel might then accept some form of Palestinian technocratic authority in Gaza with the rest of the rest of Hamas, I mean, thousands of former civil servants, thousands of party members, not just a militant group. They would sort of melt back into society, into life, even potentially into public life in Gaza. That might be acceptable to Israel. There's two things. One is uh, it's possible that if the, if Israel thought it could get secure the release of all the hostages, that it would agree to that. And then it could, you know, rationalize to itself that it'll then target them when they're outside of Gaza. It's possible. I don't know how much they're seriously considering it. I don't think that that's the ideal situation, but it's better than keeping Hamas intact on some level inside Gaza, which is really not something that Israel is considering. And then the transitional government. Yeah, there's been some plans pushed forward now by the defense minister about a this phase where there's, you know, um, some kind of Palestinian local, uh, you know, that are accepted uh, by Israel clan. I don't know exactly what they mean by that with the revitalized PA, which the, Israel has not agreed to yet. So it's very unclear uh, what that would be. I think for Israel, whatever transition would happen would take a long time and would still be completely uh, administered by the military. 
And you don't think that some sort of more permanent military occupation, not just months, years long, but something permanent, you don't see that as likely? I mean, I, if you talk to Israeli officials, they'll say that the military occupation that you're referring to is temporary and it's just a necessary interim stage. That interim stage could last three months or three years, who knows. But they talk about in the end of the day having Singapore and Gaza. Like, sure, it's absolutely possible. We just need to get through this really, really tough part, get rid of Hamas, and then we can bring in a bunch of great things. So this is how they talk about it. And they just say that it's a matter of time. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people in power who want to keep Gaza occupied or keep it or, or resettle Gaza. But I don't actually think that that's what Israel's going for here. I think it wants to have some kind of new order that is influenced by the US and moderate Gulf states. I don't think they understand what it would actually look like or how it would account for the fact that Palestinians still want an end to occupation. So it's not very realistic, but I think it would be misleading to say that Israel is interested in an endless military occupation in Gaza. I don't think that's what most Israelis want. I don't think that's what even the army would say is ideal. I think they just see it as an interim phase in order to get to something else. Uh, but that something else is very amorphous. So from quite early on, I mean, listeners probably know this, I think mid-October, crisis group called for a ceasefire. And we said that trying to destroy Hamas would entail too high a cost, too high a human cost in Gaza, too high a political cost in terms of the risks of escalation, the lasting damage to any longer term prospects for peace. And I think that's been well and truly borne out given what's happened in Gaza. But leaving the cost aside for a minute and just thinking about the feasibility, I mean, Hamas is weakened in the north. There's far fewer rocket attacks than there were. Seems that a good chunk of the military infrastructure have been destroyed, at least it seems that way. So is it possible that for all the savagery of Israel's Gaza campaign, that it may not destroy Hamas because you can't really destroy a political social movement like that, but it does irrevocably change it and irrevocably change the threat that it poses to Israel? I think Israeli uh, officials uh, in the army and, and the political echelon believe that that is achievable and they're still going for it. Um, I I'm less convinced that it's achievable. I think that what it can do is, uh, you know, rearrange the way Hamas operates, really damage their ability to attack Israel the way that it has. But ultimately, it will still lead to Hamas continuing to be present in some shape or form and other forms of resistance and even maybe more radical forms coming up. But, you know, given enough time, Israel could continue to do this. I just don't think that, in, you know, realistically, that's what's going to happen. And I think that ultimately, uh, some kind of political resolution will get Israel more gains on its security than the military does. Rob, do you want to come in on that? No, it seems that Israel has achieved some important successes so far, um, uh, at least above ground. They have damaged a lot of the Hamas capacity. Um, it does seem like there are fewer attacks in the north than there were previously. Uh, if you believe the um, evaluations of sort of the third parties out there, like the Institute for the Study of War, like there has been a pretty serious uh, degradation of, of Hamas capacity. But I think that those assessments don't address a couple possibilities that are important. The first is that Israel was pretty surprised as this war unfolded about the extent of the Hamas tunnel network. Um, and one of the reasons why the war has been as slow going is because they 
found themselves in a more complicated subterranean situation than they had expected. So while Israel has cleared, seemingly cleared pretty effectively at this point above ground in the north, we still don't really know um, what's in the tunnels um, underneath. Israel has uh, claimed to, and I'm sure has destroyed a whole bunch of shafts, but we we don't really know what might remain under there. Um, and what goes for the north um, goes um, more so for the south um, in that the uh, military operation down there is a little bit more complicated uh, because of the presence of uh, civilians um, where Israel this time is choosing to be a little bit more careful um, as opposed to in the north. And so figuring out where all those tunnels are and what's in them and who's in them, that remains an open question. Rob, Myra, thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks. So we're going to turn now to Tahani Mustafa, who's Crisis Group's Palestine expert. Tahani, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. So, Tahani, we've heard from Myra and Rob about what's happening in Israel, a little bit about what's happening in Gaza. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about Palestinian politics more broadly, some of the talks among Palestinian politicians from Hamas, but also from other factions, including Fatah, Hamas's main rival, which controls the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. But before we do that, last week, Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri was killed in Beirut, uh, we can assume by Israel. Could you start by just telling us a bit about Aruri and uh, what's the significance of his killing? Sure. Um, I mean, Saleh Haruri was the deputy chief of Hamas's Politburo. Um, he had spent most of his time in exile in, in Lebanon, uh, and he was one of the founding members of, of not only the Qassam Brigades, but also uh, Hamas's military wing within the West Bank. And for quite a while, he has been effectively Hamas's leader in the West Bank. Uh, he was also someone who um, has been supporting uh, in the West Bank the emergence of these new um, armed groups that have propped up and where there have been um, you know, a lot of accusations of, of Hamas largely financing and, and logistically supplying these groups. And Aruri has been very much into the centre of that. Um, he was someone who was quite a unifying figure. He was someone who was also uh, very much spearheading from the Hamas side uh, reconciliation efforts along with Fatah. Um, and he also had quite a lot of, I mean, for Palestinians at least, that there were some political wins under his belt, you know, being able to, to negotiate the prisoner release back in 2011. And just so listeners know, that was the release that saw Israel exchange more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners for an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, who was held in Gaza. And among the Palestinians released was Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's leader in Gaza, who's widely assumed to be the mastermind of the 7th of October attacks. But Narori, as you say, played a big role in that deal. Exactly, yeah. Um, and he's also been a figure that's been able to bridge the, the gap between the political and, and military wings of, of uh, Hamas and also the external and internal leadership. And so alongside this killing of Aruri in Beirut, there's been these talks that we mentioned earlier in Egypt and this deal that Egypt reportedly proposed. And again, just to sum up, it entailed a first step, a temporary pause in fighting and a certain number of the hostages, the captives that Hamas holds would be released. A second step would be intra-Palestinian talks leading to some form of technocratic government for Gaza. Third step would be a bigger deal. It would see the remaining hostages, captives held in Gaza released in exchange for all Palestinian prisoners and Israel withdrawing from Gaza. But we heard a little bit about why Israel said no to the deal, but Hamas also rejected it. 
Hamas itself didn't accept that and neither did Islamic Jihad. Uh, they want a complete and full uh, permanent ceasefire before they go ahead with any other negotiations uh, around any other uh, issues uh, thereafter. Uh, and that's primarily because they have learnt um, from the previous truce that was held between Israel and Hamas and during the ex- uh, hostage exchange deal that occurred then back in November. People couldn't go back from the south to the north uh, to check on, on what was left of their homes, to check on relatives. In the north, people were still being targeted, still being denied access to aid, where there were um, arrests, uh, assassinations. The fact that there weren't any safe corridors for people trying to go from north to south. At the same time, you had the hostage exchange deal that was going on. But Israel was also uh, ramping up its arrest campaign in the West Bank. So despite releasing something like 240 Palestinians, they managed to make up for those numbers by arresting, I think, double that within that week. And so alongside the talks in Cairo, there have also been these meetings reported between Hamas leaders and other Palestinian factions in different parts of the region, Qatar, Turkey, in other places. Now, it isn't precisely clear what's going on in these meetings, but Hamas representatives seem to have met with Mohammed Dahlan, who's a former Fatah politician from Gaza. They met with others, including Jibril Rajoub, who's the Secretary General of Fatah. He's a West Banker. Uh, he seems to have been, I don't know, sort of semi-freelancing, meeting with Hamas representatives without the permission of Prime Minister Mahmoud Abbas, head of Fatah. But broadly speaking, quite a bit of political activity and talks that seem aimed at reconciling Hamas and Fatah. Precisely. So uh, Hamas have been engaging in talks with various factions, including Fatah and and its various strands. And I think what it's now trying to do is to find a partner that it can work with to create a united factional front. Um, So at the moment, those dynamics are, are continuously shifting. They're still meeting various branches. Nothing has really been concretely decided. Um... We do know that there there have been talks with, as you mentioned, Mohammed Dahlan, Nasr al-Qudwa, with the help of the Qataris. Uh, there have also been discussions between Jabril Rajoub um, and, and other Palestinian factions, including Hamas. In one of those talks came up with an agreement whereby you would have uh, the PA, PLO and Fatah under the leadership of a unifying figure like Marwan Barghouti, uh, which all factions had agreed upon. Um, but that would be very much conditioned on his release from prison. And the idea is sort of a unified Palestinian front under the leadership of Marwan Barghouti, who we heard about earlier on the show. He would then be released from jail as part of a hostage prisoner exchange and a, and a ceasefire in Gaza. So the plan would be for his release. His name is on the list from, from the Palestinian side. Um, and that he would be part of that exchange deal. And once released, um, there would be the formation of a national council composed of different Palestinian political factions, uh, youth associations, unions, um, and they would then take a, a, a deciding uh, a vote on someone like Marwan Barghouti. And he would then go on to head the, the three main institutions, the PA, PLO, and Fatah. And from there... Palestinians could then focus on their four main priorities, which are getting a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, uh, ensuring the reconstruction and relief to Gaza, ensuring that Palestinians uh, within the West Bank remain steadfast in the face of settler violence uh, and Israeli security force. And then the fourth priority would then be 
Palestinian renewal and, and institution building. Um, and by that, they mean holding elections for the PA um, and then trying to revive what has now become a dormant institution of the PLO. And the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, I mean, I'm sure most people know, but just to clarify, that's the wider Palestinian body supposed to represent all Palestinians in negotiations, not just those in the West Bank and Gaza. What has all this sort of everything that's happened since the 7th of October meant for Fatah? We've talked before about how deeply unpopular Mahmoud Abbas is and how that's only gotten worse since the 7th of October. But Fatah and Palestinians more broadly are also in the midst of a leadership succession. The assumption that Abbas, who's in his 80s, is going to sort of depart the political scene at some point soon. Before the 7th of October, I think it was, you know, we put out a report on this. I think it was fairly clear who the contenders were. Probably primary among them was Hassan Sheikh, Sheikh General, I think, of the PLO. Has that changed? I think prior to the 7th of October, it, it was a lot easier to map out. Um, despite alliances constantly shifting, it was somewhat predictable in terms of determining who would take who once Mahmoud Abbas exited the scene. Today, I think the picture has become much more um, murky. Now, a, a figure like Hussein Sheikh uh, is... is you, before the 7th of October, it was, I mean, it was a sure win for, for Hussein al-Sheikh. And now today you have figures like Jabril Rajoub, who has been pivotal in former reconciliation efforts with Hamas, who his own brother is Hamas, um, who is able to bridge those factional divides, um, is now actually in a better position to, to run for succession than someone like Hussein al-Sheikh. You know, so that, that really has shifted the dynamics quite significantly. You know, if you'd asked people prior to the 7th of October, uh, many would have told you that the, you know, those that are going to determine the next head of the PA, PLO and, and Fatah are going, that decision will be within Fatah. Today, that is no longer the case. It is something that, that very much has to include uh, Hamas within that. So, Tahani, tell me what you make of this. It seems in some ways that right now Palestinian politics is living in one world and Israeli politics, to some degree Western politicians, are living in a completely different one for Israel most Western capitals, it's unthinkable that Hamas stays as a military or political force in Gaza, or even in Palestinian politics more broadly. The US talks about a rejuvenated Palestinian authority, potentially governing Gaza at some point. Netanyahu says no even to that, but certainly that's the US plan. US Secretary of State Tony Blinken met this past week with Prime Minister Mahmoud Abbas, but there's no suggestion at all that Hamas is going to be part of that. In contrast, as you say, the Palestinians are talking about forming some form of front that includes Hamas, none of them suggesting Hamas won't be part of it. In fact, most of them insisting that Hamas have to be part of it, as you say. Is there any sign that Palestinian politicians, Palestinian politics more broadly, are reckoning with the fact that Hamas is now a pariah? Or is that simply not possible to do while the war, the campaign in Gaza continues? I think this may be one of the consequences Hamas possibly didn't anticipate was going from isolation to being a, a complete international pariah. But it is certainly a predicament that Palestinian politics is now having to to seriously grapple with, um, which is why when when these initiatives are being floated around, there aren't any considerations regarding Hamas frontlining uh, any of the the main positions within the PA, you know, even with initiatives amongst um, the Palestinians themselves, it's always about trying to find um, certain figures outside of Hamas, but that are agreeable to Hamas. 
What Hamas is ultimately after is some part in that decision-making process within broader Palestinian national politics, being part of the broader Palestinian national fabric, but not necessarily about administration. Though that still seems quite a long way from what Israel and its Western partners will accept, at least judging from what they're saying now. There is a big difference between what Israel and its Western allies want and what Palestinian reality will allow. And even if we don't want to go into the the problems in terms of the moral approach of, of trying to impose an authority on Palestinians, but even operationally, it is fantasy to think that you can impose an, an authority that has had no part of daily governance or daily life in the Strip since 2007, uh, and to think it can simply get to grips with you know, having Gaza completely raised from the ground up and now trying to figure out a way to, to enforce things like, um, you know, health and, and law and order. What's more is that the PA or Fatah don't really have that kind of traction amongst Gazans. They're deeply unpopular. And take that with a population that have lost practically everything. You're talking about homes, families, to think that you can just simply impose an authority on them um, and not expect any kind of pushback is somewhat naive. So even on the operational side, it's unworkable. Tahani, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. So we'll turn now to our last segment, that conversation with Haika Women, crisis groups, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon director, who's in Beirut. Obviously, as we heard up top, much attention on the Red Sea this week with the US and UK strikes on the Houthis in Yemen in response to weeks of Houthi attacks on shipping routes. We'll talk about that a bit next week. But there's a lot happening in Lebanon too, and still the Israel-Lebanon border, perhaps the most likely trigger for a wider war. I started by asking Heiko the significance for Lebanon of the killing of Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri that we talked about earlier. Yeah, so uh, a w- about a week ago, um, there was uh, an attack in Beirut, uh, in Dahlia, which is the Hezbollah stronghold of Beirut, the southern suburbs. Another ca- attack, apparently with a drone, uh, killed Saleh al-Aruri, who was um, the deputy chairman of Hamas, uh, often seen as the... the main link between Hezbollah and Hamas, and uh, very close to the Hezbollah leader Nasrallah. I mean, the significance of this is, first of all, the location, of course. Uh, so um, while the fighting uh, between Israel and Hezbollah is mostly occurring at the border, this is Beirut, this is 100 kilometers, roughly, away from the actual war zone. And also uh, Nasrallah, the Hezbollah Secretary General, um, previously, before this round of conflict started, had uh, explicitly said that such assassinations by Israel would be seen as a major escalation and there would be a significant response to that. As it turned out, um, Hezbollah's response was um, rather uh, um, restrained, let's say. So Nasrallah first gave two speeches um, just said, okay, there will be a response, and the response will be on the battlefield. And then there were two Hezbollah attacks against uh, Israeli military installations in northern Israel, about between 10 and 15 kilometers away from the border. Um, So that means it's uh, striking a bit, but not very far uh, beyond the area where Hezbollah has been striking before. There's a step up uh, in the terms, in the quality of the weapons used. So uh, these were um, still anti-tank uh, rockets. That's Hezbollah weapon of choice uh, so far, but with a longer range, 10 kilometers, not five. 
Then yesterday, there was an attack with a what is called a suicide drone. I mean, a drone that exploded uh, in Safat, in uh, northern Israel, roughly 15 kilometers uh, across the border. We knew that Hezbollah has drones of the sort, but um, that they're using it in this way and that it actually reaches a target and explodes, uh, that, that's also a small step up. Um, and um, Israel yesterday killed um, a Hezbollah commander that supposedly is the the chief of these drone operations. And Heiko, it's sort of been our read since uh, the, the beginning of this sort of current phase of conflict, since 7th of October. You've talked about it on previous episodes that Iran doesn't want to lose Hezbollah, the deterrence it sees Hezbollah providing over Gaza, that although Hezbollah might feel Nasrallah, uh, Hezbollah leader might feel pressured to do something, to do something to help Hamas, he and uh, Tehran don't want a full-scale war with Israel that could end up seriously weakening, degrading Hezbollah. The point for Iran of Hezbollah is that it serves as some sort of deterrence against Israel or the US acting militarily against Iran, particularly against trying to set back its nuclear program. So thus far, what despite Arouri's killing, that calculation remains the same? Yeah, I mean, that's clearly right. So um, Hezbollah could not stand back and do nothing here because they have consistently um, um, based their argumentation and their ideological reasoning on defending Palestine, defending Jerusalem and all of this. So that's one uh, consideration. And the other is what you said. You know? So um, for Iran, it's, it's generally assumed or accepted even that um, for Iran, uh, Hezbollah is a second strike capacity that uh, that would be could be activated if there was an Israeli or even an American strike on Iran, uh, and that this second strike capacity pre- um, uh, represents a deterrent that uh, that the Israelis take into consideration. And if you read the Israeli media every time that they discuss again, what can we do about the nuclear program, and then. If, Pretty inevitably, somebody would say, well, but if we do that, then Hezbollah will attack us. And so this is, uh, has an impact, so at least if we judge from the media. And also Hezbollah over the past years have clearly shown that there's a preference for slowly assembling tactical advantages towards changing the strategic balance. And and, uh, and Nasrallah himself has said that on, on several occasions recently, that um, this is a generational project. And... Um, Using up these military assets they have at this point, they prefer to to keep them, uh, keep them, use them to deter Israel from attacking, from a larger attack against Lebanon, maybe from an attack on Iran, and uh, behind, so, so to speak, behind the safe wall of this deterrence, keep building their capacities for a future battle that might well be years away in their calculations. So, of course, it's not just up to Hezbollah and Iran whether there's some sort of escalation on the Israel-Lebanon border. Israel, of course, also has a say in that. And several Israeli politicians have sort of said increasingly forcefully that although the Israeli army is now busy in Gaza, it's not acceptable that Hezbollah are positioned along the border, that they need to pull back. Hezbollah, as you've implied, have, since the 7th of October, moved their forces, including some of their elite forces, right up to the border, into a zone that a UN resolution, uh, which uh, the Security Council passed after the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, that resolution, in essence, forbids Hezbollah going into this zone. 
Hezbollah has done so regularly, has been there, but it's done so quietly. Now, however, Hezbollah brigades sit overtly on the border and Israeli politicians are increasingly saying that's not acceptable. Yeah, so right now, of course, the border is an active war zone and it has been evacuated. Uh, about 100,000, I think, Israelis uh, have either evacuated or, or have fled the area. But the real concern, I think, is um, uh, is that when this is over, which, and of course we don't know when it's going to be over, when Gaza is over, but once it's over, um, these people are saying, even then we can't go back because we know that Hezbollah can do exactly the same kind of attacks uh, um, as Hamas has done uh, in, on, on, on the October 7, right? So, uh, and indeed, I mean, Hezbollah has um, conducted as recent as in May uh, 23, uh, like maneuvers um, showing, so to speak, mock incursions into northern Israel, um, displays that, that look very, very similar indeed to what Hamas has, uh, has done on October 7. And if we accept that Hezbollah is um, a far more capable organization in any, in any sense of the word, uh, simply because they are operating in a state that they control to some extent, uh, in a state that has an open border with Syria, that has a direct link to Iran and all of that, while Hamas has been working uh, and the confines of Gaza that has been completely closed off from the, from the outside world. So if we accept that Hezbollah has far bigger capacities than Hamas, then the, the sense of threat that uh, these people in northern Israel uh, have, that are those who have been evacuated, but also those who are still in the north and uh, just a few kilometers back from the border, um, a few more kilometers back from the border, all these people fear that, uh, okay, Hezbollah is on the other side, um, what if they decide to do the same? You know, and, and so they are saying, no, we can't accept this. Um, Hezbollah has to be, be, has to be pushed back away from the border. And that is a, a very significant change. My colleagues spoke to, uh, uh, Israeli officials about, um, the, the situation on the border, uh, in, in May, also in May 23. And, and everybody was very relatively, um, Confident, oh yeah, as well. I would, would, will not do much, will not do anything stupid. Uh, we have them deterred. This is now very, very different. And um, and so the Israeli uh, leadership and the people in in the north say, we can only live here if we know that Hezbollah is at least ten kilometers away from the border, even better, uh, further away. So you mentioned uh, the Security Council Resolution seventeen oh one. Israel is basically saying, okay, we need this implemented for real. Hezbollah has really has to be pushed away from the border. And, uh, and they have been signaling through uh, the diplomats um, that uh, the UN or anybody, really, uh, maybe France, maybe the US, should exert pressure on Beirut, communicate to Hezbollah that you need to pull back or else Israel would have to take unilateral military measures as essentially a military operation in southern Lebanon creates some sort of buffer in the south that keeps Hezbollah away. That's basically saying we have to do something about this militarily. Others say actually in these past three months we have already uh, destroyed a lot of what Hezbollah has built on the border. Um, and so actually um, now um, going forward we would also need only need occasional strikes to, to do that. But all of that of course 
comes with a lot of risk. Um, I mean, a, a large operation pushing up to the Litani, occupying territory, uh, all of that uh, comes with a very high escalation risk and even small-scale operations uh, are liable to draw Hezbollah retaliation. And then if we have basically a, a situation where Israel, Israelis and Hezbollah keep trading fire across the border, um, then the, the people who have been displaced will also not be able to return. It will not be safe for them uh, again to live there. So, that, so that's the, the dilemma that the Israelis are in. Um, situ, statu, return to a status quo is not, uh, is, they don't, they wouldn't accept. Um, but changing the status quo um, may lead to a situation where likewise the people uh, who have been displaced uh, would, will continue to be displaced. And I think actually uh, Amos Hochstein, uh, US President Joe Biden's special envoy, is visiting Lebanon this week to see if he can sort of calm things down on the border. I think he's probably got his work cut out for him. But let's see. Heiko, just to end, I guess we've talked so far about an escalation that is deliberate, one side calculating that they want to take things up a notch. But I assume there's still the same room the growing risk that we've talked about before on the podcast about some accident or a miscalculation setting something off too. We shouldn't be complacent about that happening. Of course, there's always the danger that um, things happen that neither side really wants. Um, there's always that danger that uh, this rocket or that drone uh, hits a building, uh, which uh, Hezbollah thought was a military uh, building. Or Israel hits a building and they think that, this, okay, this is a, a military uh, position or a structure or a house used by Hezbollah. It turns out it actually isn't, you know, and then you have maybe you have 20 civilians dead, uh, and then we are in a very different situation. Significant civilian casualties on either side will put a lot of pressure on either side to act, to, uh, to respond in kind and set off that spiral. And uh, the danger existed from the beginning, but as the potency of the weapons used uh, increases, as the territorial scope widens, um, the likelihood of things going wrong, the likelihood of either side hitting a target that they may not actually want to hit uh, and creating that situation that, that could lead us into, the, into escalation, um, that likelihood also increases. The conflict has been inching up since October very slowly, more slowly than anybody thought would be possible. But uh, as the conflict inches up, we are getting into more and more dangerous territory when it comes to accidental, uh, unintentional damage and, and the size of the damage and the quality of the damage and the potency for escalation that uh, flows from it. Heiko, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Israel-Palestine, the war in Gaza, the risk of a wider regional confrontation on our website, crisisgroup.org. We also have a short piece out this week on the Red Sea, the strikes just over the past day or so by the US and the UK on the Houthis. We also have a very moving piece out shortly that tracks the experience of our colleague in Gaza that Rob talks about over the past three months. If you want more on the risks of a regional war, one of the entries in our yearly sort of flagship piece, which has just come out, 10 Conflicts to Watch in 2024, you can also find that on our website. That also gives some more details. Thanks to our producers, 
Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or you can write to me directly at at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. Next week, we'll do a special with Crisis Group's president, Comfort Hero, on that 10 conflicts to watch piece I just talked about what we're looking out for this year we'll talk more then about what's happening in the red sea and many other places the week after we'll probably look back at the results of the taiwanese elections their implications in the meantime wishing everyone all the best for the new year and please do join us again next time